Selection of seven to serve. Six, one. About that time, while the number of disciples continued to increase, a complaint, a complaint arose. Greek-speaking disciples accused the Aramaic-speaking disciples because their widows were being overlooked in the daily food service. The twelve called a meeting of all the disciples and said, It isn't right for us to set aside the proclamation of God's word in order to serve tables. Brothers and sisters, carefully choose seven well-respected men from among you. They must be well-respected and endowed by the Spirit with exceptional wisdom. We will put them in charge of this concern. As for us, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the service of proclaiming the word. This proposal pleased the entire community. They selected Stephen, a man endowed by the Holy Spirit with exceptional faith, Philip, Procordus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. The community presented these seven to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. God's word continued to grow. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased significantly. Even a large group of priests embraced the faith. Acts 6, 1 through 7. Dear precious Holy Father, we thank you for your word through which we, we find and encounter you, Lord. We thank you for the stories contained within that show us what, uh, how Jesus lived his life, and then when Jesus left, how his disciples lived and acted and, and came to the church and grew and, and all the things he did, Lord. I just pray that through looking at this passage today, God, we come to have a clear sense and understanding of what your will is for the God, give us your, your inspiration to go forward following the examples of Scripture, God. And may your spirit and that empower and enable us to do so. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. So, Dan, be sure to thank Pastor Ed for giving me a passage with names in it so you can kind of I've learned a while back when I'm reading some of the names, I just say something and I just uh, make it sound official. Whether or not it's accurate, so the more off, more authentic you sound when you say it, the, the more people buy into it. So. That's just the case of names. <laughs> I do always encourage that whenever you hear any speaker, they should always always read along in the passage and follow up and, and, and ask questions. We, we welcome your questions because, because we want to make sure that we're, what, where we're speaking is the truth from God as well. So, That's right. Um, so, you know... Authoritative voice and tone definitely helps, but, but, but be sure to ask questions. Don't just uh, take our word for it. Today we're going to be looking at this passage from Acts chapter 6. I want to talk about a modern-day uh, pastor, first of all. There's a man named Tom Rayner who was a former pastor of churches. Now he spends his time developing strategies and ideas to, to help church leaders become better church leaders. So our own pastor, Pastor Joe, likes to listen to Tom Rainer's podcasts and read his articles and such. So a few years ago, um, Pastor Rainer did a study of his own church's uh, board of stewards, board of, of deacons, actually, to determine from them what they thought his role and his responsibilities was as their church's pastor. So he, he did a survey with them. He he gave them some, some options on the survey to choose, and he also left some blanks to fill in their own ideas. As he compiled this information from his 12 deacons, 
he discovered they had some pretty lofty expectations of him. And, and not every single person agreed with all the time frames that I'm going to share with you, but, but the best, most sense that, that Tom could make of uh, the survey kind of reveals that, uh, that they haven't had a lot in mind for their pastor. So this is kind of how it shapes down. Their, their, uh, their church expected their pastor to, to be in prayer at the church for 14 hours every week. Prayer is a good thing, 14 hours every week. They also want their pastor to spend 18 hours in sermon preparation. So we're up to 32 hours right there. Outreach and evangelism, they want 10 hours. Ooh, we're at 42 hours there, so we've already passed full-time status. Most pastors work at least 50 hours a week, though, so not a big deal. Uh, they, want, they want their pastor to, to spend 10 hours a week in counseling. Now we're up to 52 hours. And they should also spend about 15 hours a week in hospital visits and home visits as well. 18 hours a week in doing various administrative functions for the church. Five hours a week in community involvement. Five hours a week in denominational involvement. Five hours a week participating in church meetings. Four hours a week during the worship services and preaching time frame. For a grand total, oh, and then 10 hours, you have to always have to throw in some miscellaneous time. So, you know, anything that didn't fall into those categories, let's say we have 10 hours and, and miscellaneous tasks at the sign, cleaning the toilets or whatever else you got to do. So that leads us to a grand total of 114-hour work week. Now, if you break that down in day by day, if you work seven days a week, which we all know you shouldn't do, we all know the Sabbath, but if Tom would have worked seven days a week, that would have given him 16-hour work days. Now, when, when we put it down that way, and all of those things were good things. I don't think any of us would say that we don't want our pastors, don't want our leaders doing those things. All those things are good. But when you put it that way, when you, when you kind of line that up and show, show that, I think we can all agree that maybe the expectations were maybe a tad lofty. That was far too much for any one, any single individual to do. So, as we dig into this passage from the book of Acts, the primary questions we're going to consider are what are our expectations of our pastor, then also what roles should we play as a part of the body of the church and um, in the ongoing life of our church and in the work in the church's work in the broken world. So what are our expectations of our pastor and what role are we called on to play in the life of our church, both here as a church body, but also being Jesus' witnesses in the broken world? Um, I teach the, the teen Sunday school class, and they probably all figured out by now. I'd like to recap. I always build on what we talked about before. So we're going to spend a moment recapping the book of Acts to this point. So we get the book of Acts with Jesus talking to his apostles and their original disciples. They, um, he spends, a, spends some time after, after his resurrection meeting with his disciples, preparing them to be on their own without his presence, without him physically with them. And, yeah, essentially in the book of Acts, you have a version of the Great Commission, where, where the disciples ask him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, don't worry about that. You see, what, what, what Jesus' disciples and what the, the contemporary Jews expected of Jesus, or whoever the Messiah was, was they expected someone who was going to make Israel great again. They expected a Messiah that was going to ride into Jerusalem and overthrow the Roman government and set Israel up as the greatest power on earth. 
So Jesus has done his thing. He's ministered for three years. He's been crucified. He's resurrected. He's meeting with his disciples, and they say to him, Lord, is this the time, is this the moment that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, don't, don't worry about that. Don't worry about times. That's the Father's business. Your job is to be witnesses. And he tells them, here's what I want you to do. Nothing at first. I want you to hang out in Jerusalem. Then when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be empowered to be my witnesses. You're going to be my witnesses in the city you're in, in Jerusalem. You're going to be in the, my witnesses in the greater region around you, in Judea, and to the neighboring region, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, which is the ends of the earth. In our contemporary thinking, that'd be full globe. So, at that time, Jesus ascends to heaven. He leaves the disciples. But he tells them to wait for his spirit to come, wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. You read on the book of Acts, you find out that they, they appoint another guy to replace Judas, the traitor, into the men in their number, named Matthias. And then uh, they have essentially 120 people who are meeting together. You have the 12 apostles, including Matthias. You have Jesus' mother and brothers. And then you have some other women as well, probably Mary Magdalene and, and their sister Martha and a few others. And then some other, some other people that total about 120. So... By the end of Acts 1, you have a church that's about the size of 120 people. In Acts chapter 2, we find the church meeting together, praying, focusing on Jesus. I imagine they're singing, singing the first century equivalent of worship songs, psalms to themselves and hymns and, and all that. And it says that, that as, as they're meeting together, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They hear the sound of a rushing wind and flames a light upon them. And they're empowered by the Holy Spirit, and they go out into their community on this day of Pentecost. Now, the day of Pentecost was an important day for the Jews. It's the day that they remembered the giving of the Ten Commandments to Moses a long time prior. So the Jews of the era had, had, had a tradition and a rule where, where they, would, they would leave whatever community they were living in and gather together in Jerusalem to celebrate the birth of their faith. The receiving of the Ten Commandments. So you have these 120 Christians, these 120 church members, meeting together, they receive the Holy Spirit, they go out, and they start speaking to the people in different tongues, different languages. And it's not like illegible languages, but it's languages that the people recognized. So for example, a Jew who had been living in Mesopotamia, who spoke primarily the Mesopotamian language, visiting Jerusalem for Pentecost, heard the apostles speaking in Mesopotamian. A Jew from Italy visiting Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost heard the apostles speaking in Latin, in the language of Italy. And all these different Jews gathered together in Jerusalem were witnessed to by the power of the Holy Spirit working through the, through the apostles, by, by the Holy Spirit providing, providing the, the translation of, of languages so people could hear and of course, we know the speculation, these guys must be drunk. That part always makes me laugh because what person starts speaking unknown but actual languages when they're drunk? I mean, have you ever, I'm not going to call anyone on the spot for, for, <laughs> for extracurricular activities, but, but, but have you ever maybe, uh, maybe participated in some, some stuff that maybe you shouldn't have? And, and got a little intoxicated and started speaking Latin, but you never knew Latin before. 
Probably not. But regardless, that allowed, allowed the people to ask Peter, what's going on? We don't understand. That's when Peter stands up before them and tells them about Jesus. He, he gives this sermon that tells them about, about how Jesus was their Messiah and how they rejected Jesus, but how Jesus overcome, they overcame their rejection. It is now the ascended Messiah. That says that 3,000 believers were added to the church that day. Went from 120 in the morning to 3,120 in the evening. Pretty, pretty powerful day. Of course, as we read on in that chapter, chapter 2, you find out about how, how the church continued to meet together. They, they would share meals together. They would listen to the disciples' teachings about Jesus. They would, they would serve people in the world. They did all that stuff that the church is called to do. As, as they continue to, to grow. And, and throughout Acts, it talks about how daily more followers are being added to their numbers. Of course, then as you read on, you find, about, find out about how, how Jesus' disciples and followers are being witnesses in the world. We have this story about, about Peter and John healing a, a lame person, a paralytic person by the road. Um, and then we read about how the, the, the authorities, the religious authorities, didn't really like that. So they call them together, they say, what are you doing? They explain it to them, they tell them, don't do it anymore, they say, we're going to do it anyway, and it's back and forth. Eventually they're released, they go and go back to the people and they praise God for, for God's deliverance, and, and, and the, way that, the way that Christ is faithful to, to see us through all of our needs. And then, they just continue, continue to grow, continue to meet together, continue to be Jesus's witnesses through the world. We read about how, how people would sell their possessions and, and give the proceeds from their possessions to the church to distribute to those who had need. Because there's a lot of needy people in the world. And the church is called upon to take care of the needy people in the world. So that's what they did. But it said throughout all of that, more people were being added to their number. Acts 6 1, the beginning of the passage says, about that time, while the number of disciples continued to grow. The number of disciples were continuing to grow. And that brings us into the passage. We find out that tensions are arising. Now imagine that. When you get a body of people together, there's going to be tension. The more people you add, the more tension you get. So Acts 6 1 continues, a complaint arose. Greek speaking disciples accused the Aramaic speaking disciples because their widows were being overlooked in the daily food service. So let me explain a little bit about some of the background here. What's this Greek speaking or Hellenistic disciples versus the Hebraic or, or Aramaic speaking disciples? So, so what's going on here is that is that if you know anything about history, the few hundred years before Jesus came, you had all these different regional empires that were going around conquering each other. They take people into captivity, bring them back, happening all around, or between Babylon and and and, um, and all these different empires. So eventually, one ruler arises named Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great is the ruler of the Greek Empire, and Alexander goes about his activities differently than all the others. Have done. You see, typically the practice was to try to obliterate a previous culture. So, for example, when the Babylonians would attack the Jews, 
They would take the Jews away from their homeland, and they would put other people to live where the Jews used to live. And the goal is always to try to try to obliterate the previous culture through through this relocation and breeding out and making laws about worshiping other gods and things like that. So Alexander decided to go about it in a different way. He still wanted the Greek culture to become the dominant culture, uh, but what he decides he's going to do is he's going to going to instead of hauling people away, he's going to try to try to bring other people there to try to incorporate people into the culture, try to assimilate them into the culture gently. So, so you might bring some, some, some new Greeks into Israel, for example, and their goal is to learn the good things about Israel, but to maybe, um, maybe try to also get the Israelites, the Jews that are still there, to maybe incorporate some of the aspects of the, the Greeks as well. So because, because Alexander's approach is, in a way, kind of more compassionate and sympathetic about the cultures, it actually kind of sticks and takes on. So by the time the Romans take charge, the Romans don't really do much of that because the Greeks have done it for them already. So at this point, you would have, in all the various regions, you would have, have people that kind of, kind of embraced that Greek concept. The, the Hellenistic people. And that's what these Greek-speaking believers are. At this point, the church doesn't include very many non-Jews, but there's a lot of Jews in Israel who have kind of been Hellenized. They've kind of become Greek in a way. So when it talks about this dispute that's risen between, between the Greek-speaking Jews and the Hebraic or the Aramaic-speaking Jews, it's between the Jews that have kind of accepted aspects of Greek, Greek culture versus those who have remained firmly Jewish. Right. Now all these have become believers, they're all followers of Christ, but they maintain their previous culture as well. So within the church in Jerusalem, you have Hellenistic Jews or Hellenistic believers who adapted to Greek cultures, and then you also have Hebraic or Aramaic, as a language they speak, believers who have maintained their Jewish culture. And the apostles were all from a background more Aramaic or Hebraic than Greek. So, when the church would start distributing these, these things to people who, who were in need, which it specifically says widows in this case, but it would have included widows, orphans, anyone who had need, when the church was going about doing their business, the Greek believers perceived that special favoritism was being shown to the Hebraic believers. And that started to raise, raise some tensions. So, that's the stat situation we find ourselves into. The problem is, the twelve apostles could not effectively take care of the needs of the ever-growing church. The problem isn't that, that there's misperception amongst people, or maybe there was some favoritism going on. We really don't know. But the problem ultimately comes down to, to the twelve apostles Remember the 12 apostles led a church of 120 that turned into a church of 3,000 that's being added to daily, daily. We don't know how large the church is by this time, but, but you can imagine it's a church of thousands of people by now. And the ultimate problem comes down to the 12 apostles cannot effectively be, be leaders of the church in the sense that, that they're teaching Jesus' teaching and discipling people at the same time as effectively caring for all the other needs of the church. When I read this story, it always reminds me of the story of Moses as well. Do you remember Moses? 
with the Hebrew child a couple, you know, 1,500 years prior or so. You see in the movies the, the, the Ten Commandments or the Prince of Egypt. Yeah, but I have an idea of the story of Moses. He grew up, he was a Hebrew child, but, but uh, the Egyptians were killing Hebrew children at the time. So his mom kind of worked some, some stuff that, that ended up allowing Moses to be raised in the household of Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter, Pharaoh being the king of Egypt. So Moses was raised in the Egyptian court, even though he was a Hebrew child. Eventually, he finds out that he's Hebrew. He gets mad at seeing, seeing the Egypt, Egyptians mistreat the Hebrews. He kills someone, then he runs away to exile. In exile, he, he finds, a, finds a wife, has some kids, then encounters God in a burning bush. And God says, Time to go back, set up people free. So Moses goes back, which we have this whole story about ten, ten plagues that. That decimated uh, portions of the Egyptian people, and eventually Pharaoh says, Get out of here. We don't want you here anymore. You're causing, causing all kinds of havoc. Take your people and leave. So, so Moses leaves. They cross, the Red, cross through the Red Sea. Pharaoh changes his mind. He goes to the Red Sea. His armies get killed in the Red Sea because God sends waters back over him. And then we find Moses going through the wilderness, and he comes across his father in law, a guy named Jethro. I really like that name. And uh, we'll bring to mind some Beverly Hillbillies or anything like that. Only ain't that dumb. <laughs> so, Moses' father in law, Jethro, comes up to Moses and, and kind, of, kind of observes Moses and the way he's leading his people. And Jethro says, well, well, what Moses is doing is he's spending all of his day from morning to night just listening to disputes of the people. Yeah. He's not really taking care of his family. He's not, not really spending the proper time he needs to with God. He's just spending all his time just listening to disputes and trying to be the arbitrator, the judge of everything going on amongst his people. So in Exodus 18, we find these verses. This is Jethro speaking to Moses. What you are doing isn't good. You will end up totally wearing yourself out, both you and those who are with you. The work is too difficult for you. You can't do it alone. You should also look among all the people for capable persons who respect God. They should be trustworthy and not corrupt. Set those persons over the people as officers in groups of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. So Jethro saw a problem. He saw Moses trying to do far more than any single human being can do. He says, no, you got to share, share the authority. you got to share the role. you got to appoint some other people to, to act as, as your representatives to, to other people as well. You can't do it all yourself. A single human being can only handle so much individually. The human body is only capable of so much. So a lot of times when I talk about the, the importance of rest and good self-care, which kind of ties into this, I'd like to tell a story about three years ago in preparation for our district, district's team camp. <laughs> so I direct our team camp, and um, the last week or so before camp tends to be a super stressful time, but trying to, trying to deal with the final detail, the late registrants, and then people are backing out, and trying to get all the, all the captains assigned, the teams assigned, and, and make sure the cooks are on board is all we're doing, and making sure the speakers are all lined up and all that. Last week, super stressful. I tend to not sleep much that week. I tend to not eat well that week. Then it comes to camp, and of course I don't have to be there to camp either. 
So this particular year, I abused myself more so than typical. I've tried to learn from it. By my Wednesday of that week, I feel myself getting to start to get that tingly in your throat and in your sinuses that you know when you have, have a cold or something coming on. Oh, great. I'm supposed to direct this camp, I'm using my voice all the time, and I'm just getting sick. That Friday night, I was also giving the final message, the concluding message for the camp as well. So, I try, I try to be smart at that point, I try to, I try to rest my voice, I, I do assign to a few other people around, hey, can you talk here, can you talk there, so that I can preserve my voice. And Friday night came, I gave that final message, and I was getting progressively more and more sick. Friday night came, I gave that final message, um, a straight message, not speaking for myself, speaking that God spoke through me. Um, went very well, my voice was completely trashed, had nothing left in me at that point. So the next morning, I'm driving home, not here to Cheyenne, but it's where I live in uh, the Bitterroot Valley, Montana. Driving home, and my senior pastor calls me, tells me, so, my sister back in Michigan is probably going to die in a few weeks, a few days. I tried to find someone else to preach, and she'd been at camp all week. I couldn't find anyone. You're up. So, I'm like, okay, we can do this. And we did it. God saw me through it. Prayed about it, ate honey, and drank tea, and did whatever I could to keep my, keep my uh, voice going to get through that, that, that service. I actually gave the same message, slightly modified, that I gave for the last night of camp. So, uh, so we got through it. Things went well. I was laid up for two weeks afterwards. Just the sickness all came down on me. I didn't have any less to give. It was because I took too much upon myself, because I didn't maintain proper self-care. I didn't delegate enough. And my body paid the price for it. You and I, as individuals, we can only do so much. We're only capable of so much. Now, God will sometimes give us an extra dose of power, which is what I think he did for me for those two messages. God will see us through certain circumstances, but there comes to be a point where our body's going to break down on us if we aren't properly maintaining it. And that's true of our leaders. That's true of our pastor. In Western culture, in our American society, and particularly in the Rocky Mountain West where we live, we tend to value individualism. We tend to value being independent. We want to be self-made people. We don't want to rely on other people. But that's not how God created us. God did not create us to be independent. God created us to be interdependent. Now, now I want to highlight that. God didn't create us to be independent. God created us to be interdependent. And you'll notice at the core of both those words is depend. A lot of times we hear about people who are dependent upon someone else as being weak. And there's some legitimacy to that. We do need to learn to mature and to grow up and then to live life outside of the, the, uh, the, the leadership of our parents or our caretakers. Independence isn't a bad thing at face value. But it can become a bad thing when we refuse to participate and cooperate with other people. You and I, were not created to be independent. We're not created to be islands off on our own. We are created to be independent, to interact, to, to work together, to, to help take care of the needs of each other. 
When I'm talking about this, I like to look back to the creation stories. In Genesis uh, chapter 1, we have this great story where, where after, after each day of creation, God looks at what he did and says, it is good. It is good. It is good. After the sixth day, after the sixth era, when God adds humanity to the mix, God looks at everything he did and said, it is very good. Or some translations say it is supremely good. That's Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 3 tells us the story of how sin came into the picture. It tells us about the, the Garden of Eden and, and Eve taking a fruit as the snake's prompting and eating it and giving it to her husband Adam. But before we get there, before, before sin comes into the picture, Scripture tells us that something that's not good existed. See, Genesis 1, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's supremely good. Genesis 3, sin comes in. But Genesis 2 tells us something's not good. Before sin, even. Genesis 2.18 says, Then the Lord God said, It's not good for the human to be alone. I will make him a helper that is perfect for him. You see, even before sin came in, something not good existed. When Adam was, was on his own, when Adam was independent, it wasn't good. He needed a helper. And that doesn't necessarily imply a marital helper, although in his case it was. All of us need people in our lives. Yep. Exodus explains this, or not Exodus, Ecclesiastes explains this well as well. As well. Ecclesiastes 3, 9-12 says, Two are better than one, because they have a great return for their hard work. If either should fall, one can pick up the other. But how miserable are those who fall and don't have a companion to help them up? Also, if two lie down together, they can stay warm. But how can anyone stay warm alone? Also, one can be overpowered, but two together can put up resistance. A three-ply cord doesn't easily snap. This Verses where it talks about if one person falls down and no one else is there to help them, what good is that? Actually, it became fairly personal for me. Um, if you're on, I read this prayer chain and you've been for a couple months. You might remember back on Christmas Eve that she sent out a prayer request that that my brother Ben, who lives here in town, is off visiting my mom today. Uh, my, my brother Ben had sent her. I first found out about it for my reason's request. Or prayer request, yeah. So, my mom was visiting for the holiday. She lives up in the Riverton, Wyoming area. And Ben was out with his, with his wife and the kids um, doing, doing some errands. And they came back, and my mom had fallen down in the house. And she collapsed, she blacked out, and she didn't have any help. Now, fortunately, that was right before Ben came home. They had been planning on doing some other, other errands, but, but they felt like they needed to go home instead. So my mom blacks out, she collapses, but then she hears someone in the house, and she calls for help. And then Ben finds her, they, they get the ambulance over, they get her to the hospital. She's in for a few nights, she got out, she's back home now. She saw her doctors at home, and her doctors at home told her that if she didn't get the help she got when she got it, she probably would have died. For, you know, she, she's older, she's 66-ish, 65, but she's not that old. She's not that old. People die at that age. But a lot of people live a lot longer. You see, we need people in our lives. 
We need people to, to take care of us. We need people to care for us. We cannot be independent. We need to be interdependent. And honestly, as someone who's lived by himself for 16 years, that was a hard one for myself too. But that's what God has called us to. That's how God has created us. So the solution, we've got to learn to share the load. Acts chapter 6, verse 3 says, Carefully choose seven well-respected men from among you. We will put them in charge of this concern. Now what's interesting about this, remember this, this all arose from a, a dispute between Greek, uh, Greek-speaking believers and, and Aramaic-speaking believers. What's interesting about this is that the seven names listed are all Greek names. So the, the apostles approved the appointment of people who, who the Greeks, the, the oppressed party of the situation, would have respected to, to be in charge of this distribution. They, they gave over their authority to, to the people who were the complainers because they knew that that was the best way that the Greeks would, would come to understand that, that they were taking care of this need. That they would have appointed... Hebrew speakers, Aramaic speakers, the Hebrew believers, then, then quite possibly the Greek church would have continued to complain. They would have continued to perceive an inequity of justice there. But by appointing the Greek leaders, that helped to show that we're, we're going to make sure this need is taken care of. So we talk about being independent. Um, a phrase that comes to my mind is the jack of all trades, a master of none. Um... A lot of times we speak favorably of the jack-of-all-trades. Honestly, I like to be a person who might be considered a jack-of-all-trades. I try to learn a little bit about as much as I can so I can be a little bit of help in most situations. I uh, recently was given a promotion at Lowe's. I've been a head cashier for 14 months. Now I'm a department manager. Now that I'm free from being stuck at the front, one of my goals is to learn, about as, uh, to learn a little bit about as much of the store as I can so I can be as much of a help throughout the store as I can. And I think that's a good thing. But, then I pondered, what would it be like if we were less concerned about doing everything and more concerned about growing our skills and abilities and the things that we're already strong in and allowing other people to grow and their skills and abilities and the things they're so strong in. And we pull all that together. Instead of being a jack of all trade and master of none, maybe we just have a bunch of people that are masters at a lot of stuff and that a lot of stuff fills the all trades aspect. Instead of maybe doing a little bit of plumbing, a little bit of hardware, a little bit of, of appliances, what if we had people in those areas that, that, that were masters of all those things and that could, that could fulfill those greater needs? You see, all of us have skills, all of us have gifts, all of us have abilities that other people don't have. And when you and I come together and bring our gifts to the equation, and someone else comes and is weak in those areas, we can, we can provide a greater, more cohesive bond in all of it. And that is what God has called us to do with the church. A couple weeks ago, uh, Pastor Joe uh, reviewed the passage in 1 Corinthians 12. Um, I'm going to look out some of these verses too, because I think this is important to, to get a picture of what it looks like to be the church. In 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 12, I'm going to skip around a little bit. 
But the actual verses will be on the screen if you want to jot them down. It says, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, Christ is just like the human body. A body is a unit that has many parts, and all the parts of the body are one body, even though there are many. If the foot says, I'm not part of the body because I'm not a hand, does that mean it's not part of the body? If the ear says, I'm not part of the body because I'm not an eye, does that mean it's not part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, what would happen to hearing? If the whole body were an ear, what would happen to the sense of smell? But as it is, God has placed each one of the parts of the body just like he wanted. If one were, if, a, if all were one in the same body part, what would happen to the body? But as it is, there are many parts, the one body. So the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. Or in turn, the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. Instead, the parts of the body that people think are the weakest are the most necessary. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. If one part gets the glory, all the parts celebrate with it. You are the body of Christ and parts of each other. Amen. I like to illustrate this with, um, with actually a, a toy. A toy that came out decades ago <laughs> called Mr. Potato Head. So I have a Mr. Potato Head with me. Didn't want him peeking out through the crack there and disturbing you, so. Here's a Mr. Potato Head. It's fairly, fairly complete. Doesn't have any hair, but I don't have any hair, so it's all good. <laughs> yeah, two, two, two eyes, a nose, a mouth, two ears, arms, legs. Paul's story. If an ear should just say, I'm not part of the body, and just go off on its own, what good is that? How does that help the body? Or if we allow the ear to do that, what good does it do for the body? Sure, there's another ear, but you don't hear in stereo anymore. You don't, don't hear very well from that side of things. The other ear goes off. What good is that? Now, people who study senses will say that, that typically if someone loses a sense or doesn't have a sense, their other senses do grow, grow stronger. But the whole body is, is, is impoverished, isn't as strong without those ears. The eyes go off on their own. They don't bring their unique gifts to the body. Each of us have a role to play in the body. It may seem like a minor role. It might not seem very significant. But you have gifts, you have talents, and you can use those things for the greater good of the body of Christ. Both this local individual church and the greater community of Christ that we know exists throughout the world. In Acts chapter 6, 7, verse 7 says, God's word continued to grow. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased significantly. Even a large group of priests embraced the faith. So as, as these seven leaders, these seven deacons were appointed, the church continued to grow. Continued to do bigger things, greater things in the world because you had people stepping up to the plate. Now you might think, you know, we, we, we have a senior pastor, we have a couple volunteer pastors, good Pastor Ed and myself, who, who work alongside him, and we have an elected church board, we also have an appointed ministry board as well, you know, between all that we have, I don't know, probably 10 to 15 
leaders of the church. Isn't that enough? No, it's not. You see, you and me, each and every one of us, in the activities of our everyday life, we are called upon to be witnesses of Christ Jesus. Now, we certainly have people in this church who participate in, in, in food shelters and, and local and in gatherings of, of, of food and, and various needs locally and, and in the greater church world. And that's good. We need those things. You can help with those things. You can join in. Or maybe you have a vision of, of something else that you could do. Maybe you have an idea of, 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 of something that's lacking in our church. And you could, you could take the charge of fulfilling a need in, a, in, a, in an area of brokenness in our community. Time to step up and do that. Pastor Joe shared a story about Kim doing something similar a few weeks ago. I'm not trying to build up Kim's mind. Just trying to use, use an example. We're all called to do something. Honestly, maybe it's not leading a ministry like that. And, and maybe your family needs to be where you're focused. You don't have a lot of extra time. That's all right, too. But you go to a job, or you go to school, and you're interacting with people through that job, through that school. How's your interactions with people? Are you, are you showing them Jesus? And certainly talking about Jesus is a good thing, but, but not even verbally talking about Jesus, but showing Jesus by the way you live your life, by the things you do, by the way you treat others, by by your willingness to pour out yourself for others, by following the example of Christ Jesus. To go into our time of reflection, I encourage all of us to consider what we are doing for the church and for the kingdom of God. Are we using our unique set of gifts and skills to our greatest capacity the support of the church? Are we taking care of those who are in need of help and support? Are we participating in activities that help to uplift the downtrodden and oppressed of society? Are we, in the everyday activities of our lives, whatever those activities are, doing all we can to be witnesses of Christ in both word and action to all those we encounter? How can we, as followers of Christ, members of his church, work together to bring restoration to brokenness and proclaim the name of Jesus to the lost world? Let's pray. Dear precious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for all you are, all you've been, all you will be, Lord. We thank you for for your goodness and taking care of our needs, Lord. God, I just pray that we, the church, will learn to be the church. Father God, show us, show us what, what we can do to step up, to be active participants in the church. Knowing that, that just a single person or even 15 part members of the leadership team can't be everything but that all of us play an important role in this body we are done. Father, I pray that you're with, with Pastor Joe and Christy and Nikhil and Sarah Wayne, Lord. Bring them refreshment, God. So when they return, they can, they can be empowered to continue being our leaders, Lord. 
But Father God, I just pray you would show us and guide us in how we too can step up. We pray these things in your son Jesus Christ.